0: It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15.
1: Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Gypsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
0: The president has appointed Matthew Whitaker as acting attorney
2: general. We discuss what this means for the Mueller probe and for the newly elected House majority.
1: This is Sarah from the left
0: and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pintu Politics, everyone. As you might have noticed, there is a different voice joining me today. Elise Knapp, our marvelous production assistant, is filling in for Sarah, who's in Nashville, Tennessee, recording our audiobook. Shout out to John and Kevin and Gabe, who are working with us on the audiobook. They're an awesome team. I really enjoyed my time with them. And I know Sarah's having fun there, too, although I did see on Instagram that she's struggling not to cry as she reads the book which hopefully lets you know that it's going to be good.
2: Yeah, I saw that too. And I thought that seems so appropriate. But yeah, Sarah's (laughs) Sarah's busy. And we figured that after reading the book all day, she would be out of a voice. So here I am filling in and got big shoes to fill.
0: So... (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you're here, Elise, and I want to thank you and Dylan both because I feel like you guys have moved mountains for me. I ended up having to go to my hometown for a family funeral today. My great uncle passed away at the age of 84 um, he had a wonderful life, and it was a wonderful celebration of his life, but it caused a lot of disruption here at pansy Politics, and you would never know it because Elise and Dylan are so committed and so awesome, and I appreciate you both so much.
2: Oh, well, we love doing it, and we're happy to help, especially when it's a family situation like that where you need to be where your priorities are. You've had your priorities in the right order, to be sure.
0: Thank you. And Sarah and I are going to be on the road this week. We are going to Houston, Texas. Many of you have asked what we're going to be doing in Texas. We will be at the National Council of Teachers of English conference. We are presenting about talking politics in the classroom with awesome listeners who awesomely and somewhat confusingly are also named Beth and Sarah. So we're going to do that. We are on a really tight schedule while we're in Houston. We would love to do a listener meetup or something else while we're there, but we just can't make it happen this trip. Don't worry, Texas, we will be back. And then we are flying directly from Houston to Gettysburg, and we hope to see many of you at the live show in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about that in our show notes or our weekly emails or on our Facebook page. And today, Elise and I have lots to talk about. We are going to start out with the wildfires in California, do a little gratitude moment around Veterans Day, and then we will jump into what is happening in the Department of Justice. And we'll end, as always, with what's on our mind outside of politics. So Elise, these fires are horrific
2: yeah I am um, we're recording this on Monday night, and I listened to the daily this morning. um I usually listen to it while I am getting ready in the morning, and I was doing my makeup when I turned it on and and they had these personal recordings of people fleeing the fires, you know obviously in their cars talking to their kids, telling them that their their car's not gonna catch on fire. And it did not turn out to be a great time to be doing my makeup <laughs> um because I was getting all teary and it's just so it's It's just devastating. It's really hard to imagine what these people are going through for
0: sure. At least 29 people have died. I listened to the daily as well um, on my way home today. And I also was just reading about why this is happening, you know the the numerous factors contributing to increased forest fires and how really the kind of spread, of urban areas in California to previously unoccupied land, combined with climate change and hotter temperatures and wind. And it's just a disastrous recipe. And so when the president is tweeting about how this is forest mismanagement, it just seems to really, in addition to being horrifically insensitive. Mm -hmm. It seems to really miss the complexity of factors that have converged on California. And I can't imagine analogous scenarios where this many people, like a town is gone. We've lost an entire town. And and we're not moved on a national level to do something about that. We have to do something about this.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. I saw that in four days, over 200,000 acres, which is over 300 square miles have burned. And that's larger than all five of the boroughs of New York City put together. And, you know, of course, if, if an area that size burned or was devastated, but I would not even want to say in a populated area, because this is a populated area, but somehow these natural disasters, we're just becoming increasingly immune to them um, as they continue to get worse and worse, in part, because of climate change not exclusively um but in part and and it's so hard to even just think that we're not all focused on this i mean obviously the insane news cycle makes us desensitized to many things but i do think that part of it is stories that would normally get so much attention in our national consciousness we don't talk about because things are figuratively burning down in washington all the time i think that's such a good point and
0: Sarah and I exchanged brief messages about climate change today and how we just keep talking past each other Mm. about climate change. Because I think the folks who are against the science on this here in discussions of climate change, some version of the earth is going to cease to exist. And that's not what anyone is saying. We're saying the earth is changing drastically. And that rate of drastic change is accelerating, right? And so what you see is that the narrative of human invincibility, you know, we can live wherever we want. We can have power and clean water, food, and just live wherever and however we damn well please, right? That's ending for us. Because everything that I've read about these wildfires indicates this is just going to keep happening. And there's not much we can do about it. And that means that people cannot live everywhere they might want to live. And I think that's a big deal and something that we
2: should care about. Absolutely. I mean, we're having the same conversation over here on the East Coast. I live in North Carolina, and my parents uh, moved last year from the Midwest, where I grew up, to Wilmington, North Carolina. And so they just this year went through their first major hurricane with Florence. And so they've faced... The reality of this storm, this these events, for the first time really in their life, we have tornadoes in, in Ohio, but not the same widespread devastation like a hurricane or like these wildfires. Um, and I was talking to my mom not long after the hurricane, and and she just said, I'll never watch a news report about someone facing a natural disaster the same way again. She said, even though their home is safe, their community is devastated, and Everything is different for her now. She, she says, I'll never see people dealing with this in the same way again, because now I understand at least a fraction more. And and while I didn't go through the hurricane, and obviously the fires are different than a hurricane, I've just kind of been carrying that with me of that, trying to bring the reality of these human lives and these, these real people with real homes and real memories and real children and, and all these things, right, that our homes hold for us are just gone for them. They have to start completely over. And for some people, that's a whole lot easier than than others as well.
0: I think that the response of the president and the lack of response from Congress on events like this is causing, for me, some kind of disorientation, especially as a person who has a pretty definitive view about what the federal government ought and ought not, not be involved in. And what is so disorienting to me is that The pushback on climate initiatives comes from conservatives. But my view of government, especially at the federal level, is that this is exactly the kind of problem government exists for, because we cannot individually attack climate change. We cannot even, through a series of charities and churches and NGOs, attack climate change. This is something that does require all of us together To work on something. Natural disasters require a response greater than individuals can manage on their own, greater than states even can manage on their own. I was thinking about California and how California is understandably feeling politically attacked by the president's response to this event, and how if I were the governor of California, I would be considering pretty hard right now what the United States has to offer me. Yeah. And what membership in the United States does for me. I've had this same thought about if I were the governor of Texas and the military is being sent to my border to solve something that is not a crisis, I would be thinking really hard about my power versus federal power. And I fear that the more natural disasters we experience in the United States and the less responsive our federal government is to those disasters, when they are exactly the kind of thing that that federal body, I think, should be there to assist in, I'm just feeling precarious
2: about our ability to hang together through this. Yeah, this is the most basic of the social contract right uh, it's the most basic of some of uh, some of john locke's theories where we all give up a little to to work and live together better and the very bottom layer of that is security um mm-hmm. where before government right before government existed the biggest and the strongest and the meanest people won and there wasn't a way to protect yourself from from others or from natural threats right like natural disasters or I don't know, wild animals or whatever. And to me, that the reason we have government is that the very most baseline purpose is that security. And and you're exactly right. What security is being offered? And you think back to this time last year, when Puerto Rico was facing Hurricane Maria, and they still are not entirely recovered from that, because the federal government did not do its job there. Mm -hmm. And It's just hard to reconcile the disinterest, seeming disinterest, of the administration with the very harsh realities of what's going on in California. And you know, you saying that, it reminds me, I saw today just a headline, so take this with a grain of salt, but I saw several headlines saying that Kim Kardashian West and Kanye West hired private firefighters to protect their home and their neighbors' homes, and it really struck me that I could quickly see this devolving, right? This is a slippery slope, to be sure. But we could see this devolving if we play this scenario out where, oh, we don't want the government to be doing these things for us. So now this is one more thing that, that wealthy people have access to. You have access to the fire department because you have the money to pay for private firefighters. And that is just a, this, this is a breaking down of, of the core of what government is supposed to do for us.
0: Well, and that's so consistent with what you see in every major study on climate change, that it will disproportionately impact the the poor and that this is another threat that will increase income inequality. And I'm talking about this as a Republican. The poor
2: are going to be very disproportionately affected as this continues to worsen. Again, even with hurricanes, because that's my frame of reference where I live, a few weeks ago, I lost power for three days after Hurricane Michael that came through after that. And I threw away basically everything in my fridge and freezer. And I, I stood there doing that, knowing that a few neighborhoods, a few miles over from me, there were people also without power for days who I know don't have the same resources that I do to replace all the things that they threw away. And it starts with small things like this, right? Where I had to throw away what's in my fridge and freezer. And for me, that's not a life shaking event. It was annoying, but it wasn't, it didn't change the way we had to look at our finances this month. But obviously if our house burnt down, we are nowhere near wealthy enough to be unperturbed by that. And There's just going to be continual gradations of this that that increase and increase and continue to separate people. And just your ability to get out. Yeah, yeah, that's strange.
0: When you hear people fleeing in their cars and think about what resources people have access to, I mean, this is really – this is something that I think we all need to be working very hard together on because it – This this is like something out of a movie, and it's here, and it's present with us, and it is not going away. And it's going to require our best minds and our most bipartisan work to solve.
2: Speaking of something that is going to require our best efforts and bipartisan work to solve, there was yet another mass shooting also in California. They've had a rough week. This was in Thousand Oaks, and there was a 28-year-old veteran who went into a bar and killed 12 people. So as he was involved in
0: this massacre, he posted on social media about doing it and about how he really didn't have a motive other than finding life boring. He said that people would call him crazy but do nothing except extend hopes and prayers after the shooting. And he ended the rampage by killing himself. It's been reported since then that police were called to his home back in April for reports of a disturbance. He was evaluated under California law. If you are involuntarily committed, you lose access to firearms. And he was found not to be disturbed enough to be involuntarily committed. But there was a thought that he might be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. His mother said she lived in fear of what her son might do. She wasn't worried about her own safety, but she was worried about him. And I think this presents another moment when we have to ask ourselves some very hard questions about liberty and the Second Amendment, because I worry about the discussions we have about mental health during every one of these shootings. I also worry about treating mental health patients, about unnecessarily depriving people of their liberty. But I don't know how many more of these we have to go through to see that perhaps losing your Second Amendment rights, at least temporarily, probably we need to err on the side of care in this
2: regard, because again, we, we have a public health crisis here. We do. And I'm a fierce proponent of gun control. But there's still something very real to wrestle with here. I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of, well, we can just take anyone's property away, even if it's dangerous property, because I think that that's a really quick path to, we can take things away for reasons that we made up, right? And and even two years ago, I would never have even thought that, but but. Under this administration, a lot, of th- a lot of things that felt crazy two years ago don't feel crazy anymore. Um, and there's also a lot of evidence here stacking up in morgues around the country, literally, that we have to do something, that what we're doing, the way that we're functioning right now is, is not working. And I don't have the answer to that. I know that I think that we need stricter laws. We need stricter enforcement of the laws that we already have. And we also need to do this in a way that doesn't disenfranchise those with mental health struggles, because that's a whole lot of the country. There's a lot of people in our country who face mental health struggles on a variety or on a spectrum of of intensity. And we don't want to deprive those people of their rights. But also, it's, so many of these stories, like with Parkland and with this Thousand Oaks shooter, it, in the end, you know, after the fact, it comes out, oh, well, we had concerns and we were worried he would do something like this. And those are the circumstances where it just feels like, then why didn't someone do something? And and it's so frustrating and so heartbreaking.
0: And I feel for the people who evaluated this person and made that call. Can you imagine what that's like? I mean, it's just layers and layers of trauma that we're living through with these shootings. And at some point, we just need to be able to have a real conversation. There was a headline, I think it was from CBS today that I posted on Twitter, and the headline was something like, victim's family says that gun control is not the issue. When you read the article, what they said was that every time you say the words gun control, half of the population checks out of the conversation. They're just not willing to have the discussion. And they were saying, we really need to have a conversation on a head and heart level first. And I think that's right, that we need to have some head and heart conversations. Sarah and I said what feels like forever ago now. We just need to sit around our tables and talk about what kind of country we want to live in. The fact that we continue to sit around and have such short gaps between the last worst mass shooting and the current one, we can't all be happy with that. We cannot feel good about that.
2: We also can't feel good about the inerrant danger of just walking around in the world. Right? When the response is, well, there just should have been someone else, a good guy with a gun. That argument frustrates me so much because increasingly we're seeing good guys with guns be victims in these attacks as well. Where, you know, they are they are gunned down and that that is not a, a fix-all solution by any means, and and when we, I, I don't want someone with a gun everywhere that I go because I believe at least I know that there's debate about this, but the the presence of a gun at all increases the likelihood of a gun going off, right? I mean, I guess there's not debate about that, right? If there's a gun, it's a higher chance it's going to go off, and I, I don't want a gun everywhere I go. I don't like going through a metal detector when I go into the movie theater. But also, I'm glad that I have to go through a metal detector when I go into the movie theater because I don't want to die at the movie theater, right? Like, it's, it's just an increasingly fraught situation where I think our anxiety levels are rising both on the day-to-day lived experience of the reality of being safe in our world, but also our, our anxiety is being ratcheted up by the partisanship around this issue as well.
0: I think that is well said. And I don't know what the answer is, except for us to continue to talk to each other about it and for the work being done by groups like Moms Demand Action to continue and for us to continue to prioritize this issue when we vote. I, I don't want to write the Second Amendment out of the Constitution, but I want to have a serious discussion about its limitations that I that I don't think we're having today. I completely agree. Well, let's talk about Veterans Day for a moment in our gratitude section. There were a couple of things that I just felt specifically grateful for, in addition to feeling grateful for all who serve our country and and who have served. And the first one I wanted to bring up is Pete Davidson's apology on Saturday Night Live. Did you catch this, Elise?
2: I did. I'll be honest. I'm not a big Pete Davidson fan. And while I do enjoy SNL, um, I've been skipping Weekend Update quite a bit because I don't love the people that they have at the desk right now. Bring back a woman, please. I'm I'm
0: sorry. Yes. Can we, can we just talk for a second about <laughs> how there needs to be a woman on Weekend Update? Yes. It's so much funnier when you have that kind of chemistry yes.
2: between the hosts. It's just a million times better. It is. And if we could specifically bring back Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, I'd be very here for that. <laughs> well, I totally agree.
0: But they have other options. There are lots of women who could do that job for and sure. be better at it. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Sorry.
2: But no, yeah, no offense. But also, I'm not enjoying... I don't think you're funny. Um, but So I'm not a huge Pete Davidson fan. I don't love his hosting weekend update right now. And when I saw last weekend that Pete Davidson said this um, about uh, one of our veterans running for elected office down in Texas. Honestly, I, I didn't feel surprised. Um, I kind of It was kind of one of those things that I was like, I do not have time to get my outrage machine worked up about this. And then I saw that all over Twitter, right, of people getting all worked up on both sides of how dare he say this, and also liberals aren't going to be mad about this, and I was like, no, we can also be mad about this. Um, you know, just it's kind of the whole spectrum of what's become a very normal response to these issues in our in our society. And I was like, I'm just not going to watch it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna skip it. I'm gonna skip this one. But then when I saw that Lieutenant Crenshaw had come on the show and Pete Davidson had apologized, well, now you have my interest because now this isn't just the normal. Cycle of outrage. Now there's something new here. And so, yes, I did watch it and I thought it was great. I thought it was wonderful that Pete Davidson, in his quirky way, apologized and recognized that he made a mistake and admitted that. That's so rare in our society. And then I also just loved that Lieutenant Crenshaw came on and dealt with it head on, right? And and the words that he had to say about how much we need more forgiveness and dialogue in our community. He fit right in on pantsuit politics.
0: It was terrific. If you don't know what we're talking about, Pete Davidson made a joke about Lieutenant Crenshaw who is a Republican candidate for Congress's eye patch and he has an eye patch because of an injury that he suffered in combat. And it was a beautiful moment of someone actually being sorry and someone actually accepting that apology and just being done with it and moving on. It was it shouldn't be such a striking thing,
1: no. but it was
0: striking. I mean, it really was. And I and I thought it was beautiful. And I thought it was such a good example of some of the really positive characteristics those who serve in the military seem capable of picking up, you know, just a sense of what is important, what is not important, that we that we belong together. You know, you got that sense from him that we belong together. You're making fun of me. It's fine. And I forgive you for going too far. And here we are. It's fine. It was just, it was really terrific.
2: It really was that just that attitude of I'm not going to engage in everyone else taking this to a 10 on the outrage scale. I'm going to deal with this on a person to person basis, not on a national basis. You know, th- there was just an element in their short conversation on air it just rang of two people having a real conversation where one says, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And the other says, you know what? Yeah, you did, but I forgive you and let's move on. And I think, you know, you know, you and Sarah talk about on the show about sometimes kind of bringing these conversations down to an individual level, right? It's easy for us to rant and rave about each, about each other, about what's going on on social media or on the internet. But when we actually sit down with a real person and talk to them, especially someone we have a relationship with, that's where the real work is. And that's when things actually get done. That's right.
0: I was also grateful on a totally different uh, <laughs> spectrum from Pete Davidson. I was grateful for the remarks that Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, made about patriotism as he honored the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. He said, Patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. By saying our interests first, who cares about the others? We erase what a nation holds dearest, what gives it life, what makes it great, and what is essential its moral values. I know there are old demons which are coming back to the surface. They are ready to wreak chaos and death. History sometimes threatens to take its sinister course once again. And I thought this was really a wonderful reminder that you don't end a war alone. You know, you don't, you don't act in the world in defense of values unilaterally, ever. The truth is that America needs its allies and its allies need America. And I'm so happy that there is leadership coming out of the EU on this point because no one knows better than European countries how important military alliances are and how important just having friends in the world is. And I'm glad that he's not afraid to, to say this. I agree.
2: I thought it was such a moving speech and pointed to be sure. It was so refreshing to hear a leader speak such powerful prose and, and to speak well and to say what he means. And yeah, it was, it was a great speech and, and I loved the images that came out of the the armistice celebrations over those several days um, of of German and French and British and all of these European leaders sharing this moment when a 100 years ago, their countries were attempting to destroy each other. And in the grand scheme of things, it was a reminder for me that history is long and the battles we're fighting right now will not last forever. The wars that we're fighting right now will not last forever. And we want to build relationships that can can withstand that. And we need relationships that with, can withstand the test of time in great ways. And we need to also, again, be able to offer forgiveness, not just on a personal level, but sometimes on a national scale as well. Next
0: up, we are going to discuss the firing of Jeff Sessions and the appointment of Matthew Whitaker. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020, But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment, visit BetterHelp.com/pantsuit today to get 10% off
1: your first month. That's BetterHelp hel slash pantsuit Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy beetroot. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt. In Japan, they like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat, I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q u i n c e.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash pantsuit.
2: So Trump fired Jeff Sessions about 12 hours after the midterms. Not even that, really. (laughs) He was like, we're not even going to wrap these races. Pack your bags, Jeff. Yeah, I heard or read somewhere that um, when John Kelly called Sessions to tell him he needed to turn in his resignation, that Sessions asked to at least ride it out to the end of the week, which in previous times would have been a probably more normal political move on the end, both parties end. But John Kelly said, nope, you got to turn it in now. So he did. Certainly wasn't an unexpected move by the president. But to do it just that fast after the midterms was it, still somehow astonishing. It was. And
0: it has been drama Since Jeff Sessions recused himself from the Russia investigation, the accounts in Bob Woodward's book, Fear, talk about how Sessions was refusing to resign and basically said he's going to have to fire me, um, that they didn't really speak after that. There were accounts in Fire and Fury of a, a moment when Sessions said he was going to resign and Reince Priebus begged him to stay. It was a little differently told in Bob Woodward's book. Who knows? He's out. And normally what happens is that we kick into a statutory scheme for replacing the attorney general. We have a statute that says when we have a vacancy in the office of the attorney general, the deputy attorney general takes over. So that means that Rod Rosensteiner.
2: Yep. (laughs) Rod Rosenstein, (laughs) you would think, would be in charge now. But is that what happened,
0: Beth? That is not what happened. The president has just said. Hello, everyone. Meet Matt Whitaker. Matt Whitaker was the chief of staff for Jeff Sessions. A job that he possibly wasn't qualified for to begin with. Right. And we're going to talk a lot about Matt Whitaker's background, which I find fascinating. You've probably heard questions about the legality of Matt Whitaker's appointment, so I wanted to take a second and break that down a little bit. There is a fantastic article on this at Just Security from Marty Letterman, and we'll put that link in the show notes. But here's the high-level view. So we have this statute that says it should be the deputy attorney general. We have another statute called the Vacancies Reform Act of 1988, and that statute allows the president to appoint government officials who've served over 90 days at a certain pay grade in the federal government's pay scale to perform the duties of a vacant office. And so the Department of Justice's position says that these are kind of two different doors and the president can use either one of these doors. The deputy attorney general could take over or the president could appoint someone under the VRA. So. Marty Letterman points out that when Alberto Gonzalez resigned as attorney general in 2007, President George W. Bush named the assistant attorney general for the civil division to be the acting attorney general when the AG succession order, in effect at that time, would have assigned those functions to the solicitor general. So this is before Congress changed it to say, no, it's going to be the deputy attorney general. So even though we had a statute under George W. Bush for who should take over, he did appoint someone else. And Letterman goes on to say, and I'm going to quote him here, As far as I know, however, the appointment of Whitaker would be the first time in U.S. history that the president has designated as an acting attorney general someone who was not then serving in an office to which he or she was appointed by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. And it'd be the first time since 1868 i.e. since Congress enacted a specific AG succession statute, that the acting AG would be anyone other than a sitting Senate-confirmed DOJ officer. So this is a pretty big deal. And there are two legal problems now with this appointment. So first is the statutory question. Can the president really use that Vacancies Reform Act, even though there is a specific statute about what to do when the attorney general is not in office? The second question is the constitutional question. Since Whitaker has not been confirmed by the Senate, is his appointment in violation of the Appointments Clause of the Constitution that allows for the Senate to give advice and consent? Here's what I want you to know. These are really complex arguments and getting them into the court system is a nightmare because who has standing to raise these questions as we've talked about on the podcast before you can't just walk into court and say i have a problem with something i believe it's illegal you have to be specifically injured by it and so just figuring out who could even bring such a lawsuit and how they could bring it and whom they would bring it against and what the claims are Working this to the Supreme Court would be highly charged and problematic and thorny and probably create some really bad law that we'd be suffering the consequences of for a long time. That said, hard for me to see how we just say, well, this seems okay. Because these are really important questions.
2: They are. And they're questions that are not ones with easy answers. This is yet another situation where I try to remind myself that the silver lining of the Trump administration is that I'm learning so much about the process of our government and how things work and the way they're supposed to work and how they're not working. And I am I have been a political nerd and a legal nerd for as long as I can remember. And still I'm learning so much. I had no idea that this there were so many rules and regulations on who becomes acting attorney general. And, and you're exactly right, Beth, that to fix, to change this, whatever verb you want to use, is going to be or or would be an incredibly messy legal battle. And it just doesn't seem like it's one that we have the bandwidth for right now. There are so many potentially messy legal battles that this newly elected Democratic House has its buffet of options to choose from. And, and I don't know that this is going to be one that they want to tackle.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, my view is that they are the people to tackle it. I agree. That this, this should not go through the court system. I think that this, this should be a bipartisan group of representatives and senators going to the White House and saying, We are putting our foot down about this. You will put someone in that office who has been confirmed by the Senate. Don't care who it is, but someone who's been confirmed needs to be sitting in that seat because this is going to be incredibly ugly and fracturing for the country if it ends up in the court system, especially if it ends up in the court system going all the way up to the Supreme Court. When you have a nation very bruised by the last two appointments to the Supreme Court, by the last three appointments to the Supreme Court, right? <laughs> and still questioning where the court is and what it's about and and how partisan the court is. I, I, If I were John Roberts, I would be like kneeling beside my bed praying every night that this case doesn't come to me <laughs> because it is a hard one. And the court does not need to be weighing in on this right now. And, and I think this is where Congress just needs to show some muscle. Like, where are the people who are walking into the president's office like West Wing style and saying, listen, you have to contend with us and you don't want to fight us on this?
2: I would pick this battle if I were there. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I, I think we're going to see more of that now that there is a Democratic House. There is going to be some pushback from legislatures, at least from the Democratic side. I mean, not that there hasn't been pushback to this point, but some pushback with some actual power behind it. I want to go back to what you said, that this is this is such a difficult case and it would be so tough if it did get, go into the court system. And I think that it's important to clarify that if you look at this from a, a moral perspective, it's really not that hard. <laughs> um, but trying to make a legal case for it. Is where things will get very, very messy. And you're right. This is on a matter of principle alone. This should be a really straightforward issue for both parties to go to the president and say, look, the country is fractured. The country is hurting right now. And the country is concerned about abuse of power. And so you need to have someone in this position that is trustworthy and that has been through some sort of vetting in the structure that has been built for exactly that process.
0: And that's the thing for me. Matt Whitaker, let's put everything we know about him personally aside. This could be Brene Brown, right, who I believe is one of our country's finest. And I would still say, Mr. President, the Senate has a role to play. This is one of the most important offices in our country. The power of the attorney general is massive. We must have someone we've confirmed in the seat. We must.
2: Yes, we do. And I think right now we're so wrapped up in this idea of the Mueller investigation, for good reason, right? But I think we're forgetting about all the other things that the Justice Department oversees. It's you know At the beginning of the Kavanaugh nomination process, before everything got real crazy, um, I just kept reminding people in my life as, it, as we discussed it that abortion is not the only issue that the Supreme Court decides. In fact, it might not see an abortion case for years. I don't think that's probably going to be true, but there are so many other things in the litany of items that the Supreme Court could have an influence on. And it's the same thing here. The Justice Department oversees so much of what's happening in our country, including a lot of what's happening around immigration, which is also a mess right now. And so to put a person in this position who has not gone through the proper vetting and who, as we're going to talk about his background here, maybe wasn't even qualified for the job he had to begin with, it's concerning to say the very least.
1: Earth Breeze eco sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. EarthBreeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children, as young as possible, to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze Sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go, here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved, and this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim forty percent off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit.
0: They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. So let's talk about who this guy is. He has an MBA and a JD from the University of Iowa. So he does have a law degree. Yeah, he has a law degree. He I'm happy to see a diversity of educational backgrounds represented in the Department of Justice. I do not think everybody should be from the Ivy League. I do not even think everybody on the Supreme Court should be from the Ivy League. So I have no problem with his education. Hooray. After graduating for law school, he worked for a number of regional law firms, um, including one in Minneapolis, one in Des Moines. He was corporate counsel for a national grocery company, Super Value, and he was a small business owner. He had interest in a trailer manufacturing company, a daycare, and a concrete supply company. All sounds good so far, right? Great. I'm, I'm on board. In 2002, he ran for treasurer of Iowa. He lost to a Democrat by eight points. All good. No problems here. 2004, George W. Bush appointed him to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Iowa. And here is where I start getting concerned. While he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Iowa, he led a two-year prosecution of an Iowa state senator for allegedly extorting $2,000. So the resources of the federal government were used against this person over a crime allegedly in the amount of $2,000 for two years, the jury acquitted this individual in less than two hours. And some reports say that it took them about 20 minutes to find that he was not guilty. And this guy, the state senator, was a young liberal Democrat who was openly gay. And Matt Whitaker made ugly comments on talk radio about his sexual orientation. And this gentleman has written a story for Politico about how this was a quintessential witch hunt from the Department of Justice and a politically motivated stunt. Um, we'll put that link in the show notes. It is worth reading. OK, so he seems very partisan. OK, that can, let's let that be our conclusion. He seems very awfully partisan and perhaps to not have a lot of respect for all citizens. In 2009, he resigned. He was replaced by an Obama appointee, and he went back into private practice. He helped with Tim Pawlenty and Rick Perry's presidential campaigns, and then he ran for a nomination in the Senate. He ran for the Republican nomination for the Senate in Iowa. He placed fourth in the primary, losing big time to Joni Ernst, who would go on to win that Senate seat. He chaired the campaign of Sam Clovis for state treasurer. Clovis lost that campaign, and then he started going on television to capture the attention of one Donald J. Trump, hoping to be appointed to the federal bench. So Trump sees him on TV. Of course, he does, because he watches a lot of TV by every report and hired him essentially to be an attack dog against the Mueller investigation, to be inside the Department of Justice monitoring the investigation, making sure that it was as narrow in scope as possible to the fullest extent of his powers. I've read some reporting that he has been kind of letting the White House know what's going on throughout the course of the investigation. CNN reported that the Federalist Society recommended him as chief of staff for Sessions, and Vox has reported that he provided private advice to Trump on how the White House might pressure the Justice Department to investigate the president's adversaries, including appointing a special counsel to investigate the FBI and Hillary Clinton. So now we have for sure partisanship. Yes. He has espoused some pretty extreme views, including this is a new one for me. He is critical of Marbury versus Madison. If you have even toyed with the idea of going to law school, you probably know something about Marbury versus Madison because it is pretty much the foundation of how the Supreme Court operates. It is Where judges said for the first time, we are the final arbiter of the Constitution and what we say is the law of the land. And our entire system of justice is really built around those ideas. So I've never heard anyone seriously make the argument that Marbury versus Madison was wrongly decided. But there's first time for everything. (laughs) He also has said that judges should have a biblical worldview, that he would not support the appointment of secular federal judges, which would also tend to run contrary to the Constitution. He has said that states should be able to nullify federal laws. Again, Constitution says otherwise. We have a supremacy clause saying that federal law trumps state law. And then there is one final detail that you might have heard about that I thought we could walk through to make sure everybody understands it. He was on the board of directors for an organization that was basically a scam. Uh, People paid this organization to have their products patented and marketed, but the company just didn't deliver. You know, people paid their money and they didn't get much for it. And it looks like Matt Whitaker was not only on the board, but that he also wrote a letter to at least one customer who complained about the services. And that was a pretty threatening letter that invoked his status as a former U.S. attorney, which is what is so problematic about this. So now we have someone who seems incredibly partisan, who has some views that are contrary to just the letter of the Constitution, and also seems pretty comfortable
2: with using power for his own purposes. It appears that. Possibly another thing that attracted Trump to this particular appointment uh, is an article that Matt Whitaker wrote basically insinuating that the Mueller investigation... Was going too far. Um, Which, if you remember from early in the Kavanaugh nomination days, there was some discussion about why Kavanaugh was chosen, and perhaps the idea that he no longer felt presidents should face that sort of investigation might have played into the nomination. Um, So clearly, the president sees the storm that is rapidly approaching and is putting his chess pieces in place, hoping to have the best protection against any sort of legal repercussions he might face for actions he's taken in the past.
0: I think that's right. And what really frustrates me about the entire conversation surrounding the Mueller investigation is that I feel like we have all lost the plot here. Uh, True. That the Mueller investigation is not about Robert Mueller trying to convict Donald Trump of something. It is instead about what happened in our elections and did any Americans aid individuals outside of America in misconduct related to our election and crime related to our elections. Right? right. And perhaps Donald Trump was one of those Americans and perhaps he wasn't. But that is the point here.
2: And i, I we just lose it. We just completely lose it. We do. It is the point, but I think that part of the reason we as the populace have lost the plot is because I believe that President Trump believes that the investigation is about him, right? He is clearly taking this personally. And when he takes it personally, he responds in a personal manner, right? He responds in a defensive personal manner. And so then the story becomes even more about him and his personal response. And so I think we've lost the plot because... The people involved in it have lost the plot, not hopefully the Mueller team, but those who are potentially, we don't even know for sure who is under investigation really, but the president is clearly taking it personally. And so I think that is certainly contributing to our and the media's lack of focus around this investigation.
0: I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. The smartest thing he could have done at the beginning of this investigation, which his lawyers tried to advise him to do. By turning over lots of documents and being very cooperative, it is true, and I got a much fuller appreciation of this from Bob Woodward's book, that his team initially turned over unprecedented amounts of information to the Mueller team, because their their theory was we haven't done anything wrong, so it for the good of the country, let's get this out there and get it wrapped up, and if they had stayed in that space. I think it would be a very different story. Well,
2: I agree with that entirely. But I think that we could say that about almost every every story involving the president over the last two years, is if he had just exercised some self-control, that it would be a very different story. It's so true. It's so true.
0: Well, we will continue to monitor what happens with Matt Whitaker. And if anything, I'm just interested to see. You, you know, we know there are going to be challenges and we know that members of the new Democratic majority have already said they want him to come testify. For my money, it is not going to be a winner for our country to go after Matt Whitaker as an individual, despite the lit- litany of things we just read that suggest there are grounds to do that it's not about him. It is about Senate confirmation. It is about having somebody in that seat who's already been confirmed. Because that, to me, is an argument about our Constitution instead of about partisan motivation. And unfortunately, we are not doing a good job dealing with partisan motivation in any arena. So can we discuss the Constitution for a minute and see if that helps? It might not, but just a wild idea. Wouldn't that be crazy? <laughs> Next up, we are going to talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Elise, what are you thinking about this week?
2: Um, Well, some good things, some bad things. Uh, there are ants in my kitchen right now, so I'm not loving no. that. Yeah, they. we live in an older house, and they keep coming back, and... It's been frustrating. Um, but we, on the positive side, we have some brand new traps that we put out that were recommended by my best friend's husband because they came and spent the weekend with us. Um, and it was just wonderful. They, my best friend and I have known each other since the very first night of freshman year of college. And so that was 12 years ago for us. And are still friends and obviously still close enough that we go and visit each other and they have two kids, an almost three-year-old and an eight-month-old and we just had the best time. Um, I got to kind of see the world through the eyes of a of a toddler for the weekend, which was Exhilarating and exhausting. <laughs> uh, I, as you, as you and Sarah well know, I I was telling Beth earlier. I understand now better why Sarah is so run down by three year olds, um, because there's a lot of emotion in there. But it was just such a good weekend, and, and it was just I'm so thankful for enduring friendships and. Um, you know, as life phases change and people move on and grow and things are different, you just don't know always which friendships are going to last. And I'm just particularly thankful for this one. And, and also that, um, my best friend and her husband are both very politically engaged. Um, they're both conservative and and I'm more on the progressive side and we had some wonderful political conversations this weekend. And so that was fun too. What about you, Beth? What are you thinking about outside of politics?
0: That is awesome. Well, I'm thinking about friendship, too. As longtime listeners know, I've kind of struggled with friendship just as an adult because I tend to so dive into whatever I'm working on. But I have really kind of tried to make relationships more of a priority over the past couple of years. And so since the last week has for me been very tumultuous, as for many people in our country, dealing with election results. We had a death in the family. I've been sick. My kids have been sick. So we've just been kind of in this whirlwind of life throwing things at us. I went to the library to consult the mothers, the wise mothers, and I picked up some books by Jen Hatmaker and Anne Lamont and Krista Tippett. And the first book I read was Ann Lamont's book, Help, Thanks, Wow!, I had just listened to her talk on Oprah's Super Soul Conversations about this book. That was a good one. And the idea is that those are the three essential prayers, help, thanks, and wow. And and she defines prayer quite broadly. So whatever your... Um, spirituality or lack thereof, I think that there is something in this book for you. Um, And I loved the idea that what we really need as human beings is someone to say help, thanks, and wow with. Mm. And it made me think about how I really do have people in my life who, who fit those expressions for me and how my husband is certainly all of them. My friend Brandon, I feel like, is my help friend. I think I could just take anything to him, and he would receive it without judgment and with lots of comfort and... Um, Sarah is definitely my thanks friend she reminds me to be grateful and feel grateful all the time and my friend James is my wow friend I think we both try to have a sense of wonder about things that maybe other people don't enjoy or appreciate as much and it just made me feel it it was really nice to just reflect on the people who are so important in my life now. Um, And I also just I love the book. Um, I I read it in an hour. I'll probably read it again before I take it back to the Look
2: library. at you reading something so quickly. You're not even the reader on this show.
0: Oh, listen, I have read the past week. I love My it. My husband was out of town and it helped me just not watch TV and, and read. So I, I finished Fear. I read Help Thinks Wow. I'm almost finished with Jen Hatmakers for the Love. And I'm going to dive into
2: Krista Tibbetts' book next. That's awesome. I love, I love that sentiment. It's the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that, first of all, just what a gift friendships are, but also that there are different friendships for different things and different relationships for different things. And I love the sentiment of taking those prayers and applying them to friendship because, yeah, I have I have those people in my life as well. Well, and from a faith
0: perspective, I think that that's the right thing to do because I think our relationships are... Our testimony and our witness and the presence of God here on Earth with us, right? And so it—it's been, it's just been kind of a wonderful way to get me out of my funk. And the, that's why you know, consult the mothers; they know what they're talking about. Man, do they ever! Well, Elise, I am grateful for your friendship. I am grateful that you did this with me. Elise is going to be with me
2: on the Nuance Life. We have such a good Nuance Life. Topic. Oh man, tell everybody what we're talking about, Elise. I'm so excited. Well when we realized that I, well, the first original plan was for me just to do the nuance life and then craziness ensued. So here I am as well. So I'm sorry if you get tired of me this week. Sarah will be back on Friday. But I said to Beth that I knew immediately if I had been doing The Nuance Life with Sarah, I would have just wanted to talk about the royal family. Because as anyone who knows me knows, I'm a little bit obsessed with them. It's probably unhealthy, but I'm okay with that. Um, I'm not, I don't have a lot of unhealthy obsessions, but that's one. But obviously I knew that Beth wasn't going to be super interested in that. So then I just tried to plot how could we just talk about princesses. And so in a very roundabout way, we are going to um, talk about fictional women, fictional female archetypes, from princesses all the way through female superheroes and Star Wars movies and other complicated women that we embrace on TV, and how we are not so willing to embrace complicated women in the real world, even though we're increasingly okay with them in a fictional sense. So it's going to be awesome. I'm excited.
0: It's going to be lots of fun. Don't apologize. Nobody's tired of you. We're delighted that you're here. <laughs> I want to let everybody know that Sarah and I are going to be back here on Friday talking about the voting and election issues in Florida, Arizona, and Georgia. We have learned that it looks like in Arizona yes. we have a new Democratic female senator. We do. Kristen Cinema. I'm very excited. So we'll talk more about that and all of the issues on Friday. Hopefully we'll have a little bit more clarity. And we're going to talk about that article where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez cannot afford to move to Washington, D.C. yet and about the price of public service in general. So it's going to be a great show. We'll talk to you on Friday on The Nuanced Life between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan.
0: Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live
1: without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com/slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers
0: who have committed to supporting us in a major, life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers.
1: Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
0: And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.